Hi again, welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we talked about Olav Haraldsson and his attempts to keep Norway independent from Denmark. Well, technically, he was perhaps more interested in making sure that he himself was the king of Norway. The independence from Denmark bit was mostly a positive side effect. In the end, Olav failed and was killed, but he did level up posthumously and was declared both a saint and the eternal king of Norway. And that's not nothing, even if it's cold comfort for the dead. Today, we'll take a break from the seemingly constant quarreling between the Danes and the Norwegians, and instead take a look at what was happening in the land that lay between those two countries, namely Sweden. The Swedes were somewhat slower to unite than the Norwegians and the Danes, and the Swedish king who fought a long and unpopular war against Olaf Haraldsson was actually only the second traditionally recognized king of Sweden and quite possibly the first to rule over the area that we today recognize as medieval Sweden. So, what area was that exactly, and why did it take so long for the Swedes to unite? These are the questions we'll look at today. Episode 28, Swedes and Geats. To start with, we should probably specify what we mean by Sweden at this time. The country that was unified in the early 11th century had few borders in common with the modern country of the, with the same name. Medieval Sweden was divided by large, dense forests. The forests are still there, mind you, but modern technology has made it much easier to traverse them. But until only 100-150 years ago, back in the day when the general standard of roads was significantly poorer and transportation over land was dependent on muscle power, either your own or that of an animal, it was far from trivial to pass through these forests. The forests roughly divided what we think of as medieval Sweden into two parts, the land of the Swedes in the north and the land of the Geats in the south. The forest separating the Swedes from the Geats was called Kolmorden Forest. Few people lived there, creating a kind of no-man's land in a broad border zone. So despite their close proximity, when looking at a modern map, these two regions were relatively isolated from each other, and they developed separate, and sometimes competing, centers of power and commerce. At the time of the unification of Sweden, there was also a religious aspect to these differences, with the Geats adopting Christianity earlier than the Swedes north of the forest. The Geats in the south lived on the open plains east and west of Lake Vettern and were therefore divided into east and west Geats. The Swedes lived along Lake Mälaren. Long into the Middle Ages, people would talk about those living south of the forest and those living north of the forest. Thus, the king in Uppland had better control of the Baltic seashore than of Westrogothia, south of the forest. The king of the Swedes controlled the islands of Öland and Gotland and the southern region of Blekinge already from the 9th century, but it took some 200 years to take control over the land of the Geats. The amorphous nature of early Sweden wasn't helped by the fact that the border regions between Denmark, Norway and Sweden were blurry and the borders weren't clear. We saw this leading to war over taxation between Norway and Sweden in the last episode. In the period where the Viking Age was turning into the Middle Ages, it was far from clear that all of the land of the Geats was to be controlled by the Swedes, centered in Uppsala. Especially the western part of the land of the Geats, the region of Westrogothia, could just as well have ended up Norwegian or even Danish. At this point, I should probably mention a few areas of the modern country that were not a part of the 11th century Sweden. 
Among the most notable bits of modern Sweden that were not included in the original version, we have the southern region of Scania. This rich and fertile agricultural region was still Danish at the time, and it would remain so for several hundred years. Sweden also didn't really have a west coast. The southern part of Sweden's current west coast belonged to Denmark, and the northern part was controlled by Norway. Looking at a modern map, Sweden is long, stretching from north to south for over 1,500 kilometers, or more than the distance between Berlin and Rome, or Los Angeles and Portland, Oregon. But at this point in time, the country was more square-shaped, and the vast expenses stretching north of Uppsala were sparsely populated and at best only nominally a part of the Kingdom of Sweden. It would still be many years before any Swedish king would exercise any kind of real control over that region, and it was only when the authorities realized that those northern lands were a gold mine of natural resources that settlement and exploitation took off in earnest. Even though there were some settlements of Swedes living along the coast of the Gulf of Bothnia, and this population was culturally closely linked to the Swedes, they remained independent or at least not fully integrated into the Swedish kingdom until the 12th century. Further inland, the nomadic Sami people still had a number of generations left of undisturbed traditional life, free from intervention from the south. We know relatively little about the unification of the geographical area that later came to be called Sweden, but we do know that the unification of Swedes and Geats took several years, and even though older generations of historians have tended to see this as a national struggle, it's probably better to see it as a struggle for power between local petty kings, with differing economic, political and religious aims and priorities. The region called Uppland, with the area around the town of Uppsala, was the heart of the kingdom, and in the early years the areas south of the Kolmården forest were considered under Swedish control, suggesting a process of conquest. This theory is strengthened by the fact that only the people living in the land of the Swedes had the right to elect Swedish kings to begin with. Unlike Norway, where a hereditary monarchy was introduced already in the early Middle Ages, kings in Sweden were elected until the 16th century. But, and this is interesting to note, several kings were actually from south of the forest and not from the central areas where those with the voting power lived. Conventionally, the first person to be recognized as king of Sweden was a man named Erik. He's the first king of whom we know something that most historians feel comfortable accepting as fact. Unfortunately, this something is more or less limited to the fact that he existed, and that he ruled for the last quarter century of the 10th century or so. Although there were earlier Swedish kings, Erik is the first Swedish king who is attested in sources independent of each other and consequently official lists of Swedish monarchs usually begin with him. Erik started his career as one of several petty kings, ruling only over Uppland, the region around Uppsala. He expanded his domains, but the exact extent of Erik's kingdom is unknown. In addition to the Swedish heartland around Uppsala and Lake Mälaren, he may also have controlled the western shores of the Baltic Sea all the way down to Blekinge. If all of these geographical names confuse you, please feel free to cons consult the map provided in connection to this episode, both on Facebook and Twitter. Even though Erik is considered the first king of Sweden, his kingdom most likely didn't include the land of the Geats. Instead, it was his son, Olav Eriksson, who would extend the control of the Swedish kings south of the forest and include the land of the Geats in the realm ruled from Uppsala. 
And yes, that's the same Olav who fought against the Norwegian King Olav over taxation. But back to King Eric. Eric had a brother, for clarity's sake, also called Olav. Eric and Olav were co-rulers for a few years, but then Olav died suddenly, as one of two co-rulers tend to do suspiciously frequently. The sources even hinted suspicions of someone poisoning Olav. Whether he was poisoned or not, no one was ever held accountable for his death, and Eric just continued to rule as if nothing had happened, but now as sole ruler. Eric's dead brother had a son, but when Olav died, the boy was still only a child. His name was Styrbjörn, and he grew up at his uncle Eric's court at Uppsala. Styrbjörn was a strong and hot-tempered child who supposedly even killed the man at court who accidentally bumped into him with a drinking horn. When Styrbjörn reached the ripe old age of 12, he thought he was mature enough to shoulder his father's burden and become co-regent together with his uncle Eric. Uncle Eric, however, thought otherwise and refused to make the boy his co-ruler. Styrbjörn then went off in a huff and sat on his father's burial mound. You may think that this rather proves Eric's point about Styrbjörn being immature, but you shouldn't be too hasty in judging this kid. He was probably hoping that his stunt would earn him sympathy among the people. Remember that Swedish kings were elected, so the people at the thing could elevate Styrbjörn to king beside his uncle, whatever Eric thought of the idea. Unfortunately for Styrbjörn though, his little stab at steering public opinion failed. The people gathered at the thing, where he presented his demand to become co-regent, did not vote for him. It's possible that Uncle Eric had a hand in the rejection of his nephew as king, Styrbjörn certainly suspected as much, and at this point he most likely had already started to suspect his uncle of having poisoned his father Olav. To make Styrbjörn feel better, or perhaps just to get rid of him, King Eric equipped his nephew with 60 longships and sent him off on a Viking campaign, no doubt hoping that this would keep the pesky child busy, and maybe even get him killed somewhere in a land far, far away. Whatever Eric might have hoped in his heart of hearts, Styrbjörn made a success of his raiding and pillaging, earning him the nickname Styrbjörn the Strong. He even forged an alliance with the King of Denmark, but the sources differ with regards to the reason. Some claim that the Danish king was so impressed by Styrbjörn's achievements, especially with the capturing of Jomsborg, whose Vikings were a thorn in the side of the king of Denmark. Others say that Styrbjörn raided in Denmark so intensely that the Danish king was forced to strike a deal with him, giving Styrbjörn his daughter Tyra as his wife and also lending him 200 ships. And what was Styrbjörn the Strong going to do with these Danish ships? Well, he added them to his own already impressive fleet and sailed northward again. He had unfinished business with his uncle Eric back in Uppsala. Styrbjörn was hellbent on claiming his father's title as king, and he no longer had any plans to share the throne with his uncle Eric. This was all going down around the year 985. When King Eric heard that his nephew Styrbjörn and the Danes were coming, he sent out word to muster his forces. To gain time, he then had the Furious River leading to Uppsala blocked with a wooden palisade. When Styrbjörn saw this, he landed on the beach of Lake Mälaren, close to where the river Furis meets the lake, and proclaimed that he would never again leave Sweden, but he would conquer or die. He then proceeded to torch his own ships, right there on the beach, to make it really super clear to everyone that he did not intend to retreat. But when his Danish allies saw this, they got right back onto their own ships and sailed home to Denmark again, so Styrbjörn's little show of bravado may have backfired just a little bit. 
But it was too late to back down now, and besides, he didn't have any ships to leave even if he wanted to. So Sturbion and his forces marched up along the river towards Uppsala, where his uncle was waiting. Eric and Sturbjörn met at the Battle of Fyrisveller, uh, another one of those epic Viking Age battles that the sagas love to describe, but the archaeologists have found no definitive evidence of. The name, meaning Fyris Field, indicate that the battle took place on a field in proximity to the river Fyris that flows by the town of Uppsala. But there is no consensus regarding the exact location, or if there actually was a battle to begin with. According to the sources, King Eric hoped to break up Sturbion's lines by using a little trick at the beginning of the battle. He had cattle tied together and bound spears and swords to the animals. When Sturbion's army approached, Eric's slaves chased the herd in the direction of the attackers, which had the desired effect of causing confusion and chaos, at least temporarily. But Sturbion the Strong knew what he was doing, and he managed to restore order among his warriors. They could then resume their attack, and the battle ensued. If the sagas are to be believed, the battle raged all that day and the next without either side gaining the upper hand. Nonetheless, Sturbion was in a tight spot because King Eric was continuously receiving reinforcement, and who knew who else was on the way to join Eric's side? Sturbion needed to deal his uncle a decisive blow, fast. So he also called on what reinforcement he could, which in his case only was divine intervention. Sturbion sacrificed to Thor, the warrior god, before retiring to get some rest. But his sacrifice was apparently rejected because a mighty warrior with ginger beard, clearly Thor himself, appeared to him, scolding Sturbion for bothering him and foretelling his imminent defeat. Eric, on his part, also called upon the gods to aid him, but he sacrificed to Odin, king of the gods, and promised that if Odin would grant him victory against Sturbion, Odin could come and claim Eric himself in another ten years' time. And after all, what's a mere decade to a god? Eric's sacrifice was better received, and during the night a tall man appeared at his camp. The mysterious man, who clearly was supposed to be Odin, but who wore a hat that kept his face in shadow, not revealing if he was one-eyed or not, gave Eric a reed, and told him to shoot it over Sturbion's forces when the fighting resumed the following morning. Eric did as he was told, and the next morning, as the two sides were ready to continue the battle for a third day running, Eric hurled the reed into the air, shouting, May Odin have you all! As he did so, the reed turned into a javelin, and all of Sturbion's forces were struck with blindness. After that, the outcome of the battle was a foregone conclusion. But just to make it even clearer which side was favoured by the gods, a landslide suddenly appeared, basically out of nowhere, and buried all the blind Vikings, including Styrbjorn, alive. Also less fanciful sources talk of a resounding triumph for King Eric, whose forces were said to have killed two-thirds of Styrbjorn's warriors, and the only ones who survived were those who fled the battlefield. After the Battle of Fyrisveller, Eric was given the nickname Eric the Victorious. Based on the account of the battle, it's perhaps not too surprising that 20th century scholars have tended to dismiss it as mere fiction. Obviously, it doesn't help that no one knows exactly where the battle were supposed to have taken place, and that there are zero archaeological findings hinting at such a battle. But there is actually one external source that seems to mention this battle. A Polish chronicle called Gesta Wolinensis Ecclesiae Pontificum, that was discovered only in 2019, talks of a battle that may be a reference to this event. 
But the text of the Chronicle has still not been published, so it remains to be seen what the wider community of scholars will have to say about it when they get a chance to analyze it. In addition to this unpublished chronicle, there are actually a number of runestones from roughly this period, that is, the last decades of the 10th century, that mention people who fell at Uppsala. So that seems to indicate some kind of battle in the area, roughly at that time. Several of these runestones note that the person they are dedicated to fought valiantly and didn't flee at Uppsala, indicating that those who did survive were indeed only those who shamefully abandoned the battlefield. One of the stones, found in southern Scania, mentions Toki Gormson as one of the fallen, and some historians like to claim that this is none other than the brother of the Danish king, Harald Bluetooth. But it should be mentioned that this could just, just as well be some other now-forgotten battle without any connection whatsoever to Eric the Victorious and his nephew Styrbjorn the Strong. Runestones rarely, if ever, contain many details, and uh, let's not forget that dating stone artifacts is much trickier than wood, cloth, or human remains. Anyway, if you're a fan of dubious sources inflating King Eric's CV, our old friend the German cleric and chronicler Adam of Bremen has another gem for you. Actually, Adam presents us with an alternative version for why Eric was called the Victorious. Adam of Bremen doesn't mention the Battle of Fyrisvelere at all, and instead he claims that King Eric invaded Denmark and drove off Sven Forkbeard, whom Adam of Bremen disliked deeply since the Danish king with a split facial hair favored English priests over German ones. According to Adam's account, Eric's invasion of Denmark was a success, and after several battles that the Danish defenders were defeated and Sven Forkbeard had to flee into exile, first to Norway and then the British Isles, where he remained for many years. I mentioned this alleged invasion and exile back when we talked about Sven Forkbeard, and already then I expressed my skepticism. If you're interested in the details, please go back and listen to episode 26 of Viking Empire. But a brief recap would go something like this. A. Denmark was a much stronger and richer country than Sweden at the time. B. There are no archaeological evidence or texts, except Adam of Bremen's own, supporting this claim. C. We know that Adam of Bremen had it in for Sven Forkbeard, and a humiliating defeat against the weaker upstart neighbor from the north fits a little too well into his anti-Forkbeard narrative. The reason Adam of Bremen wrote such flattering things about Eric the Victorious at the expense of Sven Forkbeard is, of course, you guessed it, Eric's favorable approach to missionaries from Adam's own diocese. This doesn't mean that King Eric was a Christian, though. Adam of Bremen actually points out that Eric was quite adverse to Christianity, calling him a heathen and claiming that he was actively hostile to the new religion. And if the sagas are anything to go by, which, granted, maybe they shouldn't be, he won the battle at Fyrisvelir thanks to his sacrifice of himself to Odin, albeit delayed by ten years. But with time, Eric softened his stance vis-a-vis -vis Christianity and allowed missionaries to preach the gospel in Sweden with his blessing. Most of these missionaries were Germans, even though some were newly converted members of local families. Adam even claims that Eric the Victorious was himself converted when he was in Denmark after having driven off Sven Forkbeard. Maybe he was baptized and maybe he wasn't, but if it really happened, it didn't stick and Eric reverted to worshipping the old gods of his ancestors again. Adam of Bremen explains this abandonment of Christianity as Eric's falling back into bad habits, a bit like a smoker who tried to quit but failed. But there was also 
immense political pressure on Eric to stick with the old gods. A central task that the Swedish king was obliged to perform was conducting sacrifices at the famous temple in Uppsala. Any Christian who took his religion seriously would obviously not be able to participate in the cult of the Old Norse gods, which would mean that he just couldn't be king of Sweden. We've already seen how similar conflicts caused problems for Olav Tryggvason, the first Christian king of Norway, but Erik apparently felt less attached to Christ and solved the dilemma differently, choosing kingship over Christianity. We don't know exactly where or when Erik the Victorious died, but the written records indicate that it was indeed right about a decade after the Battle of Firisvelir, but that he died at home in Uppsala without any violence or other noteworthy drama. His son and successor, Olav, was minting coins in his own name by the year 995, so we can assume that by that time his father Eric was dead and Olav had been elected king of Sweden. It was this Olav we met last time when he quarrelled with King Olav of Norway, who later levelled up to Saint Olav. Despite Eric's possible flirt with Christianity, Olav Eriksson is considered Sweden's first reliably Christian king. He, his wife, his sons and his entire household were baptised sometime in the early 11th century, probably in the year 1008. The conversion might have taken place earlier though, because those coins he was minting in the late 10th century displayed Christian themes. But it should be noted that coins are not proof of baptism, just tolerance or favour. Remember the Roman Emperor Constantine, who favoured Christianity long before he actually converted. And if you don't remember, I'm sure Mike Duncan will be more than happy to refresh your memory. At the time of Olav's conversion, Christianity already had a strong position in Scandinavia, and not only in Norway and Denmark, but also among the Geats in the southern parts of Olav's kingdom. Olav was actually baptised in the land of the Geats, at a place called Husabi. Close to Husabi, Archaeological excavations at Varnhem, the oldest Swedish church still in use, have revealed Christian graves from the early 10th century. This means Varnhem was a Christian centre early, long before Sweden as a whole became Christianised. Several medieval Swedish kings are buried at Varnhem as well, and the church was very important, especially in the early Middle Ages before the re region fell under the domination of Uppsala, and the political and economic centre of the newly formed Sweden shifted to the northeast. Pious legends tell the story of the English missionary Siegfried, who came to Scandinavia to spread Christianity together with his three nephews named Unaman, Sunaman and Vinaman. They enjoyed considerable success in the region called Småland in the borderland between Denmark and Sweden, and apparently Siegfried must have been a big shot among the missionaries because he was called to Husabi to perform the baptism of King Olav and his retinue. He left his nephews to hold down the fort while he was away, but when the great missionary was gone, the locals were allegedly possessed by the devil and chopped the heads of Unaman, Sunaman and Vinaman and threw them in a nearby lake. They also stole the silver vessels the three murdered priests had been using during mass, so there might have been more than just anti-Christian motifs behind the triple homicide. Either way, a little murder couldn't stop these missionaries, so when Siegfried returned, he found that their heads were bobbing up and down in the water, preaching the word of God unhindered by the fact that they were detached from their bodies. Siegfried remained in Småland and spent the rest of his life preaching Christianity to the Swedes. The heads of his murdered nephews still adorn the seal of the modern-day diocese of that region. But even though Christian missionaries were successful in spreading the gospel among the Geats, 
north of the forest in the land of the Swedes, the vast majority of the population still held on to the old ways. So it might not be a coincidence that King Olav chose to be baptized in Husaby, which is situated south of the forest in the land of the Geats, far away from Uppsala and its famous temple, where the locals still expected their king to perform the necessary sacrifices to deities that the Christians considered to be demonic false gods. So why did the Swedes north of the forest resist Christianization for so long? Were they just inherently conservative? Or was it the attraction of that fancy temple of theirs in Uppsala? Well, obviously we don't know for sure, but there are a few factors worth pointing out that can have contributed to this state of affairs. If we start with the temple, its importance in creating resistance to the new religion isn't bound up in the building itself. But Uppsala was an important center for the worship of the old gods, especially Odin, Thor and Frey, with all the political and economical benefits that come with it. Centers of pilgrimage tend to grow rich and important, and it's not hard to see why the locals who profit from that would be hesitant to throw it all away just because some foreigner dressed in a robe and waving a cross around tells you that you had to do it to avoid being punished after death. Another factor is the fact that the kings of Sweden seem to have been relatively weak. This might explain why no top-down conversion was forced through earlier, despite Christianity being a boon to boosting royal power and its administration wherever it was introduced. And even though that first Christian king, Olav Eriksson, had chosen to be baptized in Husaby, deep in Christian country, he had to return to Uppsala eventually. And there, the old pagan establishment was waiting for him to perform his duties as king. There was an unavoidable fight on the horizon. Either Olav had to compromise with his conscience, or he had to obliterate the old ways of the Swedes. To begin with, Olav tried to assert his royal authority, close the temple in Uppsala and ban the old religion. But he was too weak, and in the face of vehement protests and the threat of a rebellion that would likely cost him his throne, if not his life, he backed down and agreed to guarantee freedom of religion in his realm. He had to promise to respect the old religion and not convert anyone to Christianity by force. We don't know if Olav got out of performing the sacrifices in the temple at Uppsala, or if he perhaps pulled the Henry IV of France and said to himself that Uppsala is well worth a sacrifice. Whatever agreement King Olav had with the local elites in Uppsala, his authority was weakened by his high-handedness, both in affairs of religion and in his unpopular policy of war against Olav of Norway that we covered in some detail last time. Eventually, this actually led to Olav Eriksson being deposed and replaced by his son, Anon Jacob. But after Olav repented and promised to respect law speakers, Jarls and the thing, he was allowed back as co-ruler with his son until his uneventful death in 1022. Olav's son was originally only called Anund, he received the additional name Jacob when he was baptized, so that's why he's known as Anon Jacob. In some sources, he's also called Anon Colburn, because he had the habit of punishing people by burning their house down until nothing was left other than a heap of smoldering coals. But apart from that minor detail, the Chronicles have almost only nice things to say about him. This is possibly because the Chroniclers were all monks, and Anon Jacob was very favorable to the church, and especially the German priests that were sent to Sweden. Anon Jacob didn't have any children, so when he eventually died, he was succeeded by his half-brother Emund, 
Since Emund actually was older than Anon Jacob, he's known as Emund the Elder, except in the more pious chronicles, where he goes under the name of Emund the Bad. He earned this nickname for the same reason that any Scandinavian monarch at this time was slandered in the sources. He favored English priests over the German ones who wrote the chronicles. He even chased away an emissary from the Archbishop of Bremen and insisted on making an English priest Bishop of Sweden. Luckily for the German church, Eamon's only son died during a raid in the Baltic Sea, and the throne eventually passed to another relative who was both pious and on better terms with the church hierarchy from Germany. This happened in the year 1060. The death of Eamon the Elder is traditionally considered the end of the Viking Age and the beginning of the Middle Ages in Sweden. And that does make some sense. At this point in history, we have three Scandinavian kingdoms, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden. All three are Christian, at least nominally, and they're strengthening their political, cultural, religious, and economic ties with the rest of Europe. But, as we'll see next time, there's still some life left in the old Vikings yet, at least in other parts of Scandinavia, and historians in other countries typically choose other end dates for the Viking Age. It should be noted, though, that all these dates fall in the second half of the 11th century, so the Viking Age is clearly winding down at this point. Next time, we'll return to see what the Danes and the Norwegians have been up to. Are the Danes still busy trying to subjugate Norway? Will the Vikings manage to re-establish an independent Scandinavian colony in England? Join me next time to find out. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did... Please spread the word on Facebook, TikTok, Tinder, or any other digital platform you use to communicate with others about Scandinavian history. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review and the maximum number of stars allowed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners, not to mention to brighten my day. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.